we? I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Rhodes? Where we're going, we don't need Rhodes. No. I am your father. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. You're listening to After the Ending, the only film podcast where we tell you what happens after the ending of your favorite films. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Spring and Phil Edwards. Hello and welcome to After the Ending. I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. And Phil, if you had to guess, how many movies would you say you've seen in your lifetime? Just rough, had, roughly off the top of your head. Oh my God, I would say it's going to be you know up there in the tens of thousands, I'd imagine. Yeah, I I, I yeah. figured about the same. I did some math, and I figure I'm I'm probably somewhere between ten and twenty thousand movies. So I, yeah. I think you could say pretty safely that I've seen a lot of movies. Yes, yeah. In my life, that. yeah, I've probably seen roughly around about yeah between ten and twenty thousand. Yeah, I'd say that sounds about right. So and, and and of all those movies, there's movies that I love and movies that I hate. But I can now say I've actually seen the worst movie I've ever seen in my entire life. Okay, then this could be uh, this could be interesting. Is it something by Christopher Nolan or Ridley Scott? <laughs> no, it's not even a Ridley Scott film. That tells you how much how much I disliked it. Um, and here's the here's the thing. You know, we we're generally pretty positive, right? We try not to. We don't do like like top ten movies we hate lists or things like that. Because I feel like you yeah, know, I mean, even the ones we dislike, we always try. You know, there's always good bits. I mean, we, yeah, we, right. We take the Mickey out of Ridley Scott stuff, but we always we always right. But he's even even he has made movies films, that we yeah. like, right? Yeah. But I, I had a movie watching experience the other night. It was so bad. I just I have to share it with people. I need to warn people. Uh, and that movie is Rough Night with Scarlett Johansson, um, which is just coming out on video now. And it was clearly made an attempt to capitalize on the success of Bad Moms. Um, but here's the thing. Whereas Bad Moms was a you know a pretty funny movie, Rough Night is the most horrible piece of garbage I've ever seen put to film. It, it was. It's so bad, I actually got angry while I was watching it. Oh, my God. I've not been like that with a film. Like, literally, as as the movie went on, I felt my blood pressure going up because it was so bad. That, and, that's the one where it's like a, a hen party, isn't it? And a, they get a male stripper and he dies. Or Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like very bad things just 20 yeah, years yeah. later and with a female cast. <laughs> and um, I, I, don't, I don't understand how somebody like Scarlett Johansson could, could read the script and then think, yeah, this sounds like it's funny, and then decide to make the film. And I, I get why the supporting actors did it because it's like, hey, you can be in a movie with ScarJo. But um, it's it's literally the most unfunny thing I've ever seen ever, and it really did make me angry because I kept thinking like, how many good movies are not getting made or not getting seen because they're you know they're small independent films, and then and then this just unfunny tripe you know gets released to three thousand theaters in the U.S. and how many you know worldwide um it's just it's it, there wasn't a single funny joke in it every single character in the film is completely unlikable and and it did that thing where like not one single moment in the film is realistic in any way shape or form oh I see yeah and I'm not I'm not saying that I expect all of my movies to to be like realistic you know like that everything has to be able to happen in real life but when when there isn't a single line of dialogue that an actual human being would say in real life or an actual scene that would happen in real life without someone getting arrested or getting punched uh, it's yeah. just oh man and it but it hadn't it hadn't set those rules bef- at the beginning though so it all sorts of 
Uh, you the, couldn't even the, go with it, yeah. The only rule is to make it as unfunny as possible. Oh damn! Uh, so if you're if you're out there and you're you're at the red box or you know whatever, and you're thinking, oh, this looks fun, it's not. Just run in the other direction. Well, it's it's funny you mention that about how uh, independent films need a bit more love. I was talking about that with uh, some friends the other night. We because it's all the thing about the box office this year hasn't been. You know, it's been dipping again, especially in the summer with the blockbusters. And right. it's only things like it and a few other ones which are doing well. And I think it's going to be a big turnaround. I think it's going to be uh, the big blockbusters will, you know, sort of fall out of favor a bit more, and then we'll have the independent ones coming up again. Sort of like in the seventies when you had that, you had like some of the, uh, the you know, the group of directors coming up with these real life kind of true stories, or you know, set in the real world. I think we're going to see that kind of rise of real life movies again. Yeah, I mean, I I think that would be awesome. I know that yeah. the, you know this has been a weird year for the box office, but it's nice to see that some sort of more unconventional non-franchise films have been successes, like like uh, Baby Driver, for example. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, which was fantastic and was a you know a pretty big hit, and it, you know that's the kind of thing that I, I would like to see more of. And even like you said, Stephen King's It, like it was nice to see that that is such a big blockbuster out of the gate. Yeah. Well, uh, okay, so Phil, uh, let's get into our movies then. Why don't you tell people what we are going to be discussing in this episode? Yes, we will be doing our top 10 favorite films of 1993 and going after the ending of 2006's Smoke and Aces and Steven Spielberg's 1977 sci-fi classic Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Yeah, Close Encounters is a, is a big one. It's hitting its 40th anniversary just uh, just in the past week or two. It's been in theaters. There's a new home video edition coming out. So we thought, what better time to jump in on the craze than than to talk about it in our in our show? Uh, but you'll have to wait because we're going to start off with Smoke and Aces, right, Phil? Yeah. Yes, Smoke and Aces. It is Joe Carnahan's pretty good movie. Yeah, quite yeah, enjoyed it's not it. Bad. Not bad. It's been a while since I've seen it, but I do recall liking it for the most part. Well, I watched it again today just to get back up to speed because I was confused about who does the what to the who because there's lots of different characters in it doing different things. People die. People who think that aren't dead. There's lots of switch arounds and things like that. And uh, but I I think I enjoyed it a lot more this time than I did the first time. Oh, good, good. Yeah, I mean, like I like I said, it's definitely been a long time since I've seen it. I I do li- remember liking it. I think I was. I was a little disappointed when I first saw it because it was kind of marketed as like this sort of action comedy, and it's really much more of a serious action film. The, yeah, the comedy yeah. isn't really there as much. Yeah, the tra- in the trailers, yeah, the little shots and things when you see people getting shot, it could could come across as comedy. Right. But yeah, watching watching it again today, it's it's pretty dark. It's very serious, and the violence is just I probably like real life. I imagine is just it's sudden. I'm brutal and, you know, suddenly you're dead. Right, right. Crazy, crazy. But uh, I know I really enjoyed it. I do like Joe Carnahan's work on the main. Yes, yes, I do too. Yeah. Do you want to give us a rundown? Yeah, my, my rundown's a little longer than I expected, but there's a lot of sort of important plot points to get to. So I'm, I'm keep trying to keep it as, as short as I can, but bear with me for a minute. That's okay. So Smoke and Aces, directed by Joe Carnahan, as we mentioned, 2006, starring Ryan Reynolds, Jeremy Piven, Jason Bateman, Andy Garcia, Ben Affleck, Alicia Keys, Ray Liotta, and a whole bunch of other famous people. Oh, so many. Peter Berg as well, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. One of his yeah. roles. Yeah. Uh, so the story goes, Las Vegas magician and wannabe gangster Buddy Aces Israel, played by Jeremy Piven, is hiding out in a Lake Tahoe hotel penthouse discussing a potential immunity deal with the FBI. The FBI learned that ailing Las Vegas mob boss Primo Speraza has issued a bounty on Israel worth $1 million involving a mysterious assassin known only as the Swede, who he has ordered to bring Speraza Israel's heart. That's important. (laughs) A number of assassins also seek the reward. 
Agents Messner, played by Ryan Reynolds, and Carruthers, played by Ray Liotta, are sent to collect Israel once the deal is struck. A number of assassins, including Georgia Sykes, played by Alicia Keys, Sir Ivy, played by Common, and Laszlo Soot, who is a master of disguise, descend on the hotel and basically begin killing each other. Carruthers is killed, most of the assassins are killed, although Messner lets Ivy and Georgia escape, and Soot escapes on his own. An assassin named Acosta also manages to survive. Meanwhile, Messner arrives at the hospital after they've captured Israel or gotten Israel, and he learns the truth about the day's events from his boss, Locke, who was played by Andy Garcia. It turns out that the Swede is not an assassin, but rather a prominent heart surgeon, and that the assassins were hired by Speraza to get Israel's heart, literally, so it could be transplanted into his own body. Speraza is revealed to actually have been Freeman Heller, an FBI agent who went undercover and was thought to have been killed by the mob. The FBI had attempted to kill Heller when they thought that he went rogue, but he survived and ended up taking on the role of Speraza full time. Now he's agreed to expose the mob's operations in exchange for Israel's heart, as Israel is actually Speraza's son and therefore is a compatible donor. Messner is furious over all of the unnecessary carnage and deaths. He protests and then is ordered by his boss to leave the hospital. So he walks into the emergency room, locks the door, and pulls the plug on both Speraza and Israel. He then lays his gun and badge on the floor while the FBI desperately try to break in. And that is how the film ends. Very good. Well, you summed that up quite well. Thanks. It's a lot of carnage, but it's kind of a, a neat sort of like, I don't know if it's a twist ending, but certainly an ending that has a, a bit of a surprise to it. Yeah, you sort of they, they lay, it, lay all the groundwork. I haven't watched it today. They lay it all down. So, you, you know, it's when it comes, it's not that much of a surprise. Right. It's good. No, I, I mean, lots of different people as well. I mean, Chris Pine's really good in it as one of these uh, neo-Nazi brothers who go there who are just mad. Yeah, yeah. They were they were great watching them again. But it's just the cast. Every time a new character is introduced, you're going, oh, my God, that's him. That's <laughs> right. him. Right. Oh, it's, oh, it's just just amazing. Yep, yep. Good times. All right, well, Phil, why don't you tell us what happens in your day after? Okay, Richard Messner is arrested for killing Primo and Buddy. His boss, Locke, can understand why Messner did it, but throws the book at him anyway. Messner's taken to a high-security prison and basically forgotten about. He knows too much, and Locke knows that he will tr- he would try and get the truth out if he could. Messner just seems to switch off and takes everything the prison throws at him. However, while he just seems to be broken, he's actually deep in thought. He has a plan and will get his revenge. Hmm. Interesting. That's, uh, that's my day after. All right. I like it. Okay, then. So what's, what about yours? Okay. Well, the FBI agents finally get the hospital security team to unlock the doors, but it's too late to save either Israel or Speraza. Locke takes Messner into custody and he's quickly hurried off to FBI headquarters where he's debriefed at length. After several days in solitary, Locke shows up in his cell, sits down, lights up a cigarette, and sighs. They don't know what to do with you, he says to Messner. There's no way in hell you can ever be an agent again, that's for sure, but they can't put you through a trial without the truth coming out. More than a few of the higher-ups want to just lock you up and throw away the key, but it seems like you have enough friends in high places to keep that from happening. So here's what we're going to do. And that's where I'm going to leave it for now. Okay, very good. Yeah. I wonder what they're going to do. I, <laughs> I guarantee you. I guarantee you, you will find out. Yes. <laughs> All right. Let's hear your immediate aftermath. Okay. My immediate aftermath. Messner has been out of prison for six months. He had broken out via an extremely cunning plan that ran smoothly in the main, except for one unforeseen event that Messner turned to his advantage in a spectacular manner. Well, I can't go into details about it, but it was spectacular. Okay. <laughs> Since then, he'd been busy gathering information, tracking down the killers who were present and survived the Lake Tahoe Hotel Massacre. 
He has turned all his anger and frustration and twisted it around in his head so that killing the other killers will finally bring him closure. I'm not a psychiatrist, though, so I don't know if that really works, but that's just the way it <laughs> right. goes. The right, so if you have been involved in a mob hit of some sort, yeah. do not yeah. necessarily go out and try to kill the killers because we can't guarantee that it will bring you closure. Yeah, this is just, I'm just going out on a limb. This is what Messner's feeling at the time. He's been pretty messed up mentally well, after the events. He's finally tracked down Ivy in Georgia. They, turns out they're running a gang in Chicago. Messner works his way in, and in a, in a dramatic and sudden gunfight, he kills them both as they were heading out for a nice night out. Next on his list... The mysterious soot. And that's my immediate aftermath. All right. Well, now I'm, I'm glad I mentioned who lived and who died in my uh, in my synopsis. Ah, uh, yes, it's good. But uh, it's, I just like that in the film itself, though, when somebody would open a door and then there'd be another guy there with a gun and it's bang, 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 and that's it. Bam, yeah. Dead. Right. No, and that didn't they move on. Okay, what about your, well, we're up to your immediate aftermath. All right. Six months later, Messner turns a corner just as the car bomb explodes. It's a messier assignment than the usual ones he's gotten from the shadowy agency he'd been drafted into after the Sparaza affair, but he's done his due diligence and it was clear that nobody innocent would get hurt. The agency with no name had retrained him from the ground up and sent him out into the world to take down the worst of the worst, the kinds of criminals and warlords who slaughtered innocent people by the hundreds, yet were outside the reach of the American government's laws. He always does his own research to corroborate the agency's stories, though, as he doesn't really trust any government agency. So far, they haven't steered him wrong, and he'd killed a number of truly, truly bad guys out loose in the world, with always zero collateral damage. It's a different life than he'd set out to have, but he feels satisfied and likes that he's doing actual good in the world. Then one day, he gets a new mission, to assassinate a U.S. senator. Oh, okay. Very good. I'm, uh, I'm intrigued. I like the way he's, uh, he's focusing his anger in a better way in your system. Right, right, right. Yeah. Okay, great. So uh, how about your long term then, Phil? Close it out. Okay, it's been a long cat and mouse chase between Mesner and Sut. It's made all the more difficult because Sut as a master of disguise can often change his face and blend in and you never know who he actually is. But uh, Mesner keeps finding information on who Sut is pretending to be and keeps following Sut, but he keeps just missing him. They go back and forth across America they passed through cross a few times and they fought with guns, knives and whatever else was lying around, but Sut kept getting away. Yet on occasion, Messner would kill Sut. However, he'd then find out they were not wearing a mask. He'd killed another innocent person, but in his mixed up mental state, he felt no guilt. But he did have another lead on Sut in Atlanta. It was time to go to work. And that's my end. So uh, I see that you have uh, fallen back on Old Faithful there and, uh, <laughs> and, and turned Messner into a little bit of a serial killer. Yeah, it's sort of like a mix between uh, Memento, I thought, as well. Right, you know, right. He's, just, yeah. he's constantly trying to find the guy who he feels is like, once he kills Sut, that'll be it, but he never quite finds him. But I anybody like could be Sut, so. Right, right, I like it. What all fair game. You know, I, I have to say, Phil, I, I think that listeners, you know, they get a little antsy, they get a little uncomfortable when, it, when you go too long without making someone a serial killer. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I, I think you kind of have to. I think you owe it to our audience once in a while to turn a main character into a serial killer. Otherwise, you're just you're not delivering the goods. I never set out, though. It's just a natural progression of the story. I get it. No, it works. It works. <laughs> it, I mean, it always it always works when you do it. I just think it's I just think it's one of those things that if, if you if you went like 20 episodes without making someone a serial killer, I think people would be like, what's wrong with Phil? Is he OK? Be just every time I listen, going, oh, my God, is it going to be him? Oh, no. Oh, no. It's <laughs> right. like, oh, it's oh, be this another week. happy ending. Thanks, okay. Phil. Well, I'm just waiting for that bus drive of yours to appear. <laughs> yeah, he hasn't showed up in a while, actually. No. But but to be fair, he only shows up when a movie has a character I really yeah, truly hate. hate. Yeah, so yeah. it kind of has to be a specific, you know, sort of set of circumstances. 
Okay, then. Okay, well, you bring us home with yours, then. What's happening with uh, Messner on his uh, top-secret assassin kind of guerrilla warfare missions? All right. Messner sits in the jail cell, reflecting on the path his life has taken. It had been five years since he'd refused to assassinate the senator. A rogue element within the shadow agency had wanted the senator out of the way when he tried to expose their activities. Even though Messner acted in the right, he was made a scapegoat and sent to military prison. Uh. Now, in this black site prison, he was surrounded by fellow castoffs of the U.S. government, other men who were made scapegoats for missions that went wrong in the public eye, or soldiers who refused to follow orders that were morally questionable. He'd become something of a leader among the men, his natural charisma and skills allowing him to become the de facto king of the jail yard, although he had found that his hair had turned prematurely white as a result of the stress of his situation. When Messner gets word that he and a number of other prisoners are going to get transferred for some sort of suicide squad mission, (laughs) he uses the opportunity to plan an escape. He enlists three other prisoners that he trusts to go with him. One is a good-looking, smooth talker. One is pure muscle with a bad attitude, and one is completely unpredictable. The escape goes off without a hitch, and when they've reached safety, he says to the group, I love it when a plan comes together. Now what, Messner? The good-looking man asks him. Messner, he says. Messner's dead. Call me Hannibal. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> exactly. Dun, dun, dun. Oh, brilliant. I love it. Huge A-team theme music. Yeah. I had that oh, playing in my head the whole time I was writing yeah. it. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Oh, Joe Carnahan, he directed the A-team movie, didn't he? Yes, he did. And that is actually a complete yeah. coincidence because I didn't yeah. realize that when I was writing it. I just really thought the idea uh, of, that's very cool, yeah. of Messner turning into Hannibal it sort of popped into my head. And once I had it in there, I, I, I couldn't let go of it. Oh, very nice. No, I so, like that. Thanks. Thanks. A little fun there. Oh, I did. Ryan Reynolds would be good as uh, Hannibal. Yeah, well, I think in, like in a few more years when he's a little older, I think yeah. he can make a pretty kick-ass Hannibal for sure. Cool. Oh, I like it. Yeah. All right. Well, Phil, do you have any smoking trivia for us? <laughs> I do. <laughs> As Jim Carrey would say in The Mask, it is smoking. That's right. Notice I didn't even try for the uh, impression there. <laughs> for the impression. You don't want to You don't want to regale us with a great impression this week, Phil, after last week's uh, well, banner well, <laughs> banner episode. After a build-up like that, you know it's going to be absolutely, you know, a non-starter. Right, right, right. <laughs> Smoking. So there you go. That's no, not bad. It's not yeah. a, little, a little bit like, though, Jim Carrey, if he had a love child with Al Pacino, like <laughs> yeah. kind of a little bit of Pacino in there. What do you got? It's smoking. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, mm, okay. Now no. you're going to turn. You're going to turn into Al Pacino. Yeah. Who are? <laughs> Can't get out of it now. Hold on. Yeah. Okay. The trivia. Michael Shannon was originally one of the uh, the Mad Brothers, the neo Nazis, but he was fired. I'm not quite sure why. Interesting. Carnahan ended up hiring Chris Pine instead, and he said it was within ten seconds of his audition he realized Chris Pine was the one. And he is very good in it. So yeah, I love Chris character. Pine. Yeah, Chris Pine can do. He does lots of these crazy kind of roles. Yeah, he did another one for yeah. Joe Carnahan actually in uh, this movie yeah. Stretch that he That's plays right, this yeah. complete nutbag, and he's fantastic yeah. in it. Yeah, he's really, really good. I do like him. Yeah, it was also the feature film debut of Common and Alicia Keys. Oh, that's cool. Terrence Malick, the famous film director, has said yeah. that the film is very well directed. And it apparently is one of his favorite films. Huh, cool. It was the final film of Joseph Ruskin. He's the guy who plays Primo, the mob boss. Mm-hmm. Ben Affleck, and the scene where he's talking about stuff at the bar, the playing pool. Uh, but And he's doing this monologue as he's taking the shots. But apparently it took 20 shots of, you know, while we were filming it, because Affleck couldn't make the shots because he, could never, he couldn't play pool. <laughs> so is that funny. one. And uh, Joe Carnahan had Ryan Reynolds wear one of his contacts from the uh, 2005's Amityville horror film that he was in. Had him wear it in the final scene. And it was worn on one side of his face with cuts from the big shootout, so it made it look like he had a bloodshot eye. 
Oh, that's cool. Yeah, and that's uh, Smoke and Aces. There you go. All right. Well, let's move on then to our second film for the evening. And I think you can say it is uh, a bona fide classic. Wouldn't you agree? I would agree. It's an excellent film. It's still, considering it's, I can't believe it's 40 years old, to be honest. I know, it's crazy. But, uh, but it's it, funny it's, because when I was, you know, when I was doing my, when I was doing my prep for it, I realized it came out in 77, which was the same year Star Wars came out. And I was like, man, yeah. what? Are, when was the last time you saw a year with two, like, I mean, I mean, obviously very different kinds of films, but really two of the, the touchstones of the science fiction genre really both coming out within a few months of each other. It's really pretty crazy, I think. Steven Spielberg and George Lucas as well. And right, things. right. And it's also, they're both game changers in their own way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, Spielberg it's, really kind of defined the, like, alien abduction slash, not alien invasion movie, but sort of the, the aliens coming to Earth movie yeah. type of thing. You know, And then, of course, I mean, obviously Lucas, you know, he made a few a few impactful moves, I guess, as yeah, well. Yeah, he's done, he's done all right for himself, yeah, Lucas. Yeah, yeah. But it's, uh, I was, was going to, one of the bits of trivia is I'll just say now, uh, Spielberg had tried, they did try some uh, CGI effects, but back then it just wasn't good enough. So he, mm. he stuck with the practical effects, miniatures and, you know, using tanks of milk and putting to do smoke and things like that. All that right, 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 right. Uh, well, you know, I'm okay with that because. Yeah, because it still, it still looks beautiful. It don't, hasn't really aged. It's only the fashion. What the right, exactly. And, you know, CGI is great. It lets a lot of movies be made that couldn't be made otherwise, but it, 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 it gets over relied on and so there are movies where I think that they would have been less effective with CGI from a certain time period and this is definitely one of them that that yeah. shot when the you know when the alien mothership kind of shows up and then turns over and everything is just so oh, amazing God, yeah. you know yeah. and I just don't think it would have been as impactful without that sense of physicality that you get from you know from models as opposed to you know CGI yeah well that was the other thing the mothership Spielberg originally envisioned it as being like this big dark object right. going over them but one night he was driving past an oil refinery or something at night and it was all like the flames going up but all the uh, the lights on the gantries and everything and there's the sun not far from where I live along the river you can see them all and at night time it does look like you know the, the city out of Blade Runner or the, the mothership from Close Encounters it looks amazing but that's that's what inspired him to change it and I'm glad he did yeah yeah, yeah. for sure all right, well, Phil, why don't you take us through the events of Close Encounters of the Third Kind? Okay, then. So, French scientist Claude Lacombe, played by Francois Truffaut, the brilliant French director, and his interpreter David Lachlan, played by Bob Balaban, they uh, discover Flight 19 in the Sonoran Desert. The flight disappeared 30 years before, and an old man they question says the sun came out at night and sang to him. And then other events, strange events involving UFOs happen around America and apparently around the world. A UFO narrowly misses two airline flights. And the air traffic controllers uh, ask if the, the pilots of the planes want to report them as UFOs, but they both refuse. Uh, an, an old missing ship appears in another desert. Three-year-old Barry Guyler, he uh, wakes up one night and there's strange noises downstairs and he goes to investigate and he runs out and his mum chases him. And it's all very weird. But then we're mainly with electrical lineman Roy Roy Neary, who's investigating power outages, and he sees some UFOs floating around, and he follows them. Just little lights, and there's other people there when he gets to this part on the road. He ends up becoming obsessed with them, and it alienates his family. And he keeps seeing a strange mountain kind of shape, and he, he makes it out of uh, mashed potato. He draws it, and then he gets all mud in his house and ruins his house. And his wife and kids end up leaving him. Barry's mother, Gillian is also uh, imagining the same image and she's painting it and everything and later her son Barry is abducted. Meanwhile, Lankham and Lachlan keep investigating the alien activity. Witnesses in India said the UFOs played a five-tone musical phrase. I think we all know that one. And Lachlan realises that they're actually coordinates for Devil's Tower in Wyoming. Um, so the US Army evacuates the area saying there's some kind of biohazard. Uh, but every, all the main characters end up at Devil's Tower 
where the alien mothership appears. It lands and releases numerous people who disappeared over the years. The pilots of Flight 19, the young kid Barry, they're all back and they haven't aged. Then the aliens appear and they pick Roy to join them. So he goes on board the mothership with a few other humans and they leave. And that's Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Very nicely done. Now, I, I would be lying if I said that I had never made the Devil's Tower Mountain uh, out of mashed potatoes in my own life. <laughs> no, no, yeah. More yeah. than once or twice. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, yeah, it's one of those things, once you've seen the film, you do, you go, oh, this means something. Right, right. But no, I do like the. I, just, I love the film. Great oh, movie. yeah, yeah. It's a classic. Okay, then. So that was what happened in the film. But what happens in your day after, Mike? Okay, well, the spaceship flies off and Roy is quickly dissected. Man, humans are gullible, says the head alien. No, I'm <laughs> to just serve I'm, man. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, oh, that's not okay. really my ending. That was mine. <laughs> just, I do like. I do like the idea though of being like, so long, suckers, and they just like slice them up. And that's it's like, it. Because all we did was basically go. Duh, 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 right. duh, duh, we played just some music, and everyone yeah. was like, "Let's go with you." you oh know? yeah. Right, like a snake charmer, you know. Yeah. <laughs> okay, really. Roy is surprisingly calm as the spaceship enters Earth's orbit. He knows he should be terrified, but for some reason he just feels at peace. When the aliens lay him down in some sort of cocoon-like structure, he doesn't panic, and as consciousness slips away from him, his overwhelming emotion is bliss. When he wakes up, he's traveled across the galaxy, and the spaceship is landing on what is clearly the alien's home planet. It looks unlike anything he's ever seen before. Buildings are made of crystal. There are all kinds of different life forms he's never seen before. The wind is purple, and there's music everywhere. Wow, the wind is purple. I like that. Thank you. There are no vehicles inside the city, and once again, Roy is overcome by a feeling of peace. He's led to a building, and inside, he's sat in front of another alien like the ones on the ship. The alien puts his hands to Roy's head. They glow for a minute. Then he removes them. There, that should be better. Roy hears the alien's voice in his head. Is the translator working properly? You can just think your answers. Yes, it is, Roy thinks excitedly. Excellent, says the alien. Welcome to our world, Roy Neary. We are in desperate need of your help. Oh, okay. That's my day after. I like the sound of that. Thank you. Mm. All right, well, let's hear your day after then. Okay. Roy Neary walks across the desert. At first he just walks, but then he stops and looks around. He has no idea where he is or how he got there. The sun is hot, yet he doesn't feel tired. Looking back, he sees footprints in the sand, yet they only go back a short distance. Almost as if Roy just appeared. Roy turns and keeps walking. He keeps thinking about what could have happened. The last thing he remembers is walking onto the alien mothership. He then hears a loud droning noise and looks up as a large helicopter flies over. That's my day after. Oh, I'm intrigued. Thank you. I am intrigued. But uh, what's going on with, uh, with Roy in your alien planet? All right. Well, Roy is taken to another room where a group of aliens sits in front of him. They explain to him their history. We were once a race much like the humans of Earth, warlike, savage, unpredictable. Then, a millennia ago, a great leader arose from our people and brought us together. Since then, we have enjoyed a peace unlike the universe has ever seen. The various races of beings you see here on our planet are other species from all corners of the universe that were ready to be part of our utopia. Only a very few people can tune into our frequency like you did. That's why we selected you to come with us. There are many among us who believe the human race can be a species that could thrive on our world in time, but there is a problem. What's the problem? Roy asks. We are almost out of time, the aliens respond. In a few of your years, the Earth will be dead. And that's where I'm going to leave you for now. Well, that's a bit of a bummer. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. <laughs> okay, well, we'll see what happens long term. Okay. Meanwhile, how about your immediate aftermath? 
Okay. What do you mean it's 2017? Asks Roy for the hundredth time. <laughs> I like it. This government agent sat opposite goes over everything again. Roy Neary disappeared in 1977. He was last seen at a government installation near Devil's Tower. There was no reference about what was happening there. Now they want to know where Roy has been during the in intervening years and also why he doesn't appear to have aged. Roy starts talking about the UFO and the conversation keeps going around in circles. A few hours later he is taken to the medical room for tests. He is greeted by a new doctor, an attractive red-headed woman who introduces herself as Dr. Dana Scully. And that's my immediate aftermath. I like it. Phil, I'll tell you what, though. I think uh, I think you're getting a little X-Files happy here because I know you've mentioned them a couple times before, just a few weeks ago. Well, yeah, I'm building up my X-Files cinematic universe. I'm oh. working on a book where I'm going to be linking every sci-fi film ever made to the X-Files. Oh, I like that, actually. Yes, All right. So I, you know what, then? I, I retract my original statement. That's okay, because when I say I'm, I'm working on a book, I basically I've just thought of the idea now. <laughs> and uh, I'm, I'm going to start working on it. So it'll be out at some point. That's, yeah. that, that sounds at good. At some point. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, they could all be tied up. Yeah. All the, the, yeah. the hidden X-Files, even Star Wars. Wait till you see how that happened. <laughs> <laughs> Can't wait. Well, what happens then with your long term? How is Earth going to save itself? What do you mean, Roy Stammers? We've been visiting your Earth for many years, but our scientists have determined that its time is nearing an end. There is a planetary instability that will cause the planet's core to rupture within the next five years. Unfortunately, we don't believe the human race will be ready in time. This is why we need your help. I think I know what to do, Roy says. Over the next five years, Roy uses the alien's technology to monitor the Earth, keeping track of various people on the planet. He compiles a massive database of peacekeepers, healers, artists, teachers, and people of note for doing altruistic and charitable deeds. When the time comes, Roy turns his research over to the aliens. This is it, he says. This is the future of our race. There are 10,000 selected humans in there, along with all of Earth's children, that will let our race survive without threatening your utopia. The aliens thank him, and while it was a heavy burden for Roy to decide which fraction of a percentage of the Earth's population would live, he knows he made the right decision to help. When the alien fleet returns with the remains of the human race, it's bittersweet at first when Roy thinks of all the people that were lost. But as years pass by and the human race thrives in the peaceful utopia, he comes to be regarded as a hero in the intergalactic community. His legacy outlives him by millennia. Oh. And that's the end. So a bit of a downer, but, you know. Well, it is and it isn't, yeah. though, because, yeah, yeah. you know, I mean, I think we can all agree that the, the world as it is right now ain't perfect. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, and so we needed to get the, the human race in order for it to survive, had to go to this utopia, but we couldn't bring it as it is right now. So this is sort of like a second chance for humanity to, you know, reinvent itself and become part of this great utopia. So I see oh. it as an uplifting ending, although, no, yes, like the like deaths of seven billion people could be seen as, as a bit of a downer, I guess. Yeah. If that, you want to look at it that way, Mr. Glass Half Empty. That happens off screen. It's OK. Right. Exactly. Yeah. The dogs probably live, too. I'm sure I am sure they brought oh, the yeah. dogs. I forgot yeah. to mention that, yeah. but I'm sure the dogs lived. So, yeah, that's OK. then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, very good. I like it. Oh, thank you. So let's uh, let's bring it on home then, Phil, and give us your long term. I'm, I want to see how this all wraps up. OK. Weeks later, and Roy Neary is getting ready for the press conference. Dr. Scully had revealed herself as an FBI agent and with the help of her partner, Fox Mulder, got Roy out of the black site where he was being held. Since then, they had kept moving around while explaining events of the past few years, both public knowledge and secret goings on that they've all both been privy to. They set up the press conference for Ray to reveal the truth. Ray takes the stage and he looks out at the many cameras facing him. He feels calm and then something clicks in his head. He's swamped by memories of his missing years. He remembers what he has to do. My friends from amongst the stars return me to give you a message. He pauses. 
There's something heading to Earth, something dangerous, and you all must prepare. He pulls out a memory stick, which he'd been working on in the intervening weeks, and places it on the podium. All the information you need is on this. Thank you, and good luck to us all. There is then a blinding light. When it clears, Roy has disappeared. That's my long term. Mm, I like it. And you know where he went? Back to the planet Utopia. Yeah. It's, uh, this is all part of the same thing. Right. They tie in. Yeah, sort of. I mean, except for the fact that my in mine the world had you know died oh, thirty five yeah, yeah. years before. But still, I mean, it could work. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that's uh, that's close encounters of the third kind. Actually, I could have t- tied into Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull. Uh, but why would you want to though? Mm. I think that's, you know, it's it's the thing from Jurassic Park. Just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. No, it's true. Better to leave that one alone. Yeah, it could have been a minefield of mediocrity. Right, exactly. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Phil, I think I'm ready for some close encounters of the trivia kind. So what do you got for us? Holy crap. (laughs) They just get better. They just get better. Uh, Highlights of the week. (laughs) Exactly. How is he going to transition to the trivia section this week? See, I like to keep you on your toes. Always worth waiting for. <laughs> I, I enjoy oh. it. I don't, I don't know okay. if anybody else does, but I get a kick out of it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the trivia, Carrie, Carrie Guffey is the one who plays the little kid because he was a little kid, so he's really good at it. But apparently he was really good. As a, They only had to do one or two takes for all his scenes. He just nailed it every time. Wow. Stanley Kubrick was so impressed with Guffey's performance that he considered him for Danny Torrance in The Shining, but that didn't happen. Uh, no trace was ever found of the real Flight 19, which disappeared in December 1945. Mm-hmm. Spielberg has said that nothing has been more difficult than editing the final 35 minutes of the film, wow. which is uh, interesting. The John Williams score was created before the film was edited, and Spielberg edited the film to the music, and he, he says that's why it has like this lyrical quality to it, and it just helps the magic flow, I suppose. Cool. Uh, in the truck scene where Richard Dreyfuss appears to be weightless, his truck was put on a turntable and then turned 360 degrees. Huh. Uh, all the stars in the background of the night shots were special effects added afterwards. And Al Pacino, Jack Nicholson, James Kahn and Gene Hackman were all offered or considered for the role of Roy. But uh, Richard Dreyfuss, he'd heard about the film while he was working with Steven Spielberg uh, on Jaws and he was uh, set up a campaign to you know, try and get the role, and it obviously worked out quite well for him. Uh, yeah, I think it worked out well for everybody. Yes. Very cool. All right, so that is Close Encounters of the Third Kind, as well as Smoke and Aces. Those are our endings. And now we will move on to 100 Years of Hollywood in 100 Episodes, wherein Phil and I share our top 10 films from a particular year of the last century of Hollywood. So, Phil, why don't you climb into your famous time machine and take us back to the 1990s and 1993, specifically. Okay. So, in 1993, the UK Prime Minister was John Major, and the US President was Bill Clinton and it was another one of those years which so many of them are when I go back over where there was lots of wars battles explosions bombings hurricanes murders and things and it's they always half of these years look a lot worse than we're actually in now so it's not as bad as you think everyone you know smile but the, some of the things which weren't too bad uh, Czech well depends who you were but Czechoslovakia ceased to exist well, that sounds quite bad but it's only because <laughs> it, it's it didn't disappear <laughs> You know, didn't physically, but it just became the Czech Republic and Slovakia. I would just, I would just like to point out that uh, Phil is the only one in this podcast who hates Czechoslovakia. So if we have any Czechoslovakian <laughs> listeners, I love Czechoslovakia. So don't hold his Czech prejudice against me. I just want to get that. I, I you know, can I have the Czech, please. <laughs> uh, no, I also love the Czech Republic and Slovakia. There you go. Both beautiful places. Uh, Star Trek: Deep Space Nine premiered. 
Yay. Yes, the Mir Russian Space Station boasted the first art exhibition in space. You know, I don't think it's kind of very nice of you to demean it like that. It's like it's just the Mir Space Station. I mean, that's a pretty big accomplishment, <laughs> you know? It's not just yeah. merely a space station. <laughs> very good. <laughs> Sorry. Like I'm yeah, in I'm rare sure form that, today. I'm sure the art exhibition, you know, I'm sure that was packed out. People, you know, couldn't wait to see it. Uh, the World Trade Center suffered a bombing in 1993 when a van parked outside the North Tower exploded and killed a few people. So, you know, see what I mean? There's been things going on. Mm-hmm. The siege of David Koresh's cult at Waco, Texas took place. I remember watching that in the news. Yeah, it was on my birthday. Yeah. Wow, happy birthday. I have a bad... <laughs> the 90s and my birthday were very bad because it was Waco and the Oklahoma City building and then uh, Columbine. Wow. Uh, all uh, Columbine missed it by a day, but only because my birthday fell on a Sunday that year, I'm convinced. So it was every Good two time. years for yeah, yeah. for a Good stretch time. in the 90s there. My birthday was kind of not a great day. Yeah, wow. But luckily that's passed, so... Yes, that's good, yeah. Uh, if you've been watching Narcos, uh, this was the year that Pablo Escobar was gunned down by police. That's not a story. That's not a spoiler because that really happened. Right. <laughs> Mighty Morphin Power Rangers debuted on Fox Kids, and Lorena Bobbitt cut off John Wayne's Bobbitt. I'm gonna leave it at that. <laughs> Nicely played, sir. Thank you. Nicely and we played. we saw the bears of uh, these. People, Will Poulter, Victoria Justice, Chance the Rapper, Miranda Cosgrove, Maker Monroe, Ariana Grande, Taylor Momsen, Elizabeth Gillies, Barbara Palvin, Molly Quinn, and Anna Sophia Robb. We saw the deaths of Dizzy Gillespie, Rudolf Nureyev, Audrey Hepburn, Thorgood Marshall, Bobby Moore, Lillian Gish, Ashiro Honda, Brandon Lee, James Hunt, William Golding, Raymond Burr, Vincent Price, Federico Fellini, Bill Bixby, Frank Zappa, River Phoenix, Don Amici, Andre the Giant, and Fred Gwynn. And we have the film debuts of Jennifer Aniston, Michael Shannon, Noah Emmerich, John Favreau, Dave Chappelle, Vince Vaughn, Matthew McConaughey, Kate Beckinsale, Ryan Reynolds, and Terence Howard. Quite the eventful year. Yeah, 1993. All right. Well, why don't you go ahead and kick us off, Phil? Give us your number 10. Okay, my number 10 is What's Eating Gilbert Grape, directed by Lassie Halstrom, and starring Johnny Depp, Juliette Lewis, Leonardo DiCaprio, and Darlene Cates. And Johnny Depp is the titular character who's got to care for his brother Arnie, Leonardo DiCaprio, who's got developmental disability, and also his mother, who is morbidly obese and can't get off the couch. It's quite funny, touching, sad. Great performance by everybody, especially uh, DiCaprio, who uh, many people thought he was he was actually a physically disabled character when he was doing the role. He did it that well. It's a great film. If you haven't seen it, it's worth uh, taking a watch if you're, if you're a fan of any of those people. It's yeah. also good back in the day when Johnny Depp you know, was doing some low-key acting as well right 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 yeah, yeah you know uh, all these years I've meant to see that film and I've just still never gotten around to it so one of these days I'll get to it but it just hasn't I haven't found the time yet well it happens so many good films it's true all right well my number 10 I'm going to start things off with a tie and those two films are Life with Mikey and Son-in-Law now I know you wouldn't necessarily expect to see a Pauly Shore film on one of my top 10 lists, but I have to say I do have a soft spot for Son-in-Law. Uh, it's it's actually a pretty funny movie, and Pauly Shore works because he's playing the fish out of water, so his all his yeah. weird Pauly Shore-ness uh, out on this farm, it's actually quite funny. And I have to say I have a real soft spot for that movie because it introduced me at least, if not the world, to Carla Gugino, who has gone on to be one of my very favorite actresses over the last 24 years. And I may be slightly in love with her for the past couple of decades. So, um, so that, that's really what, what the, that, why that made my list. Me too. I feel, I feel the same way about it. And Life with Mikey is this really great underrated comedy with Michael J. Fox playing a former child star, uh, who is now a talent agent who finds a 
precocious child star that he thinks he can can oh, be I a success. That. Yeah, yeah it's, it's one, one of those yeah. movies. It was never a big hit. I don't think it's really one that stayed in the the, the pop culture lexicon very much. But I always really enjoyed it, and and again, kind of a soft spot for it. I just think it's a really funny film that never really got uh, the attention it deserved. And and I am a big Michael J. Fox fan, so he he carries a lot of weight for me. Excellent, Paulie Shaw. You forget. I mean, you forget how big he was at the time. Yeah, for a short period of time, yeah. he was a big. His success. films he made just made it. They were just hugely successful. I, I think part of it for me, too, was I always hated him for the most part, even when he was yeah, really popular. Yeah. And I only went to see that because my girlfriend at the time really liked him and thought he was funny and wanted to see it. So she kind of dragged me to it. And I, I really didn't expect much from it. And then I just thought it was really funny. You know, it's just a, it is a good fish out of water tale. Yeah. You know, it just, it won me over. It's a funny movie. Excellent. No, good pick. Uh, my number nine is Cliffhanger. Very good. The Sylvester Stallone film directed by Rennie Harlan. Song uh, also got John Lithgow, Michael Rooker, and Janine Turner. Uh, we talked about it in episode 49, so you, if you want to listen to us talk about it more, you go back to that one. But I just like it. The action, good action up in the mountains. John Lithgow's brilliant as the bad guy, and Stallone does a cracking job as the uh, the mountaineer who has to get back on the horse and get back up in the mountains. Very good choice. I, I had it on my list, and then it got bumped out, but it certainly is a movie that I really enjoy and could have made this list if I had more spots on it. So Yeah, I had a few films like that which kept going into the list and coming back yep. out again. But uh, Ironically, yeah. it was on TV last night. I ended up watching it for about 20 minutes. Oh, excellent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool. All right. Well, my number nine is also a tie because that's just how I'm rolling this week. But it's my last one. So it's two films for me that I think are driven by nostalgia, and they are The Sandlot and Indian Summer. Uh, the Sandlot, I mean, I think everybody knows it. It's the kids, and they play baseball, and there's friendships, and it's got You're Killing Me Smalls, yeah. uh, which even my wife says sometimes, which tells you how much it's entered you know, <laughs> the, the general public's consciousness. Um, so I don't think I have to say too much about that. And Indian Summer, I believe I mentioned once before on one of our top five five lists yeah you did yeah I've, I've not seen it it's just a film i really like great actors kevin pollack is in it and elizabeth perkins is in it and vincent spano a lot of great people but it's just it's about this group of grown-ups who go back to the summer camp they all went to as kids and um sort of you know are, are struck by the differences in their lives and in this camp and it's it's kind of a really nice dramedy um, it's got some touching moments, but it's got some really funny moments. And it, it is, again, a, a film that is criminally underseen. Okay. Well, my number eight is uh, Jane Campion's film, The Piano. Very good. Uh, it's New Zealand film starring Holly Hunter, Harvey Keitel, Sam Neill, and Anna Packin. It's a light musical comedy about piano. Oh, yeah. It's, well, it's, it's very, yeah, <laughs> musical comedy. Uh, it's about a woman, a mute woman. She's sold by her father into marriage to a New Zealand frontiersman. So she goes over there with her daughter. She's not spoken a word since she was six, um, but she's got a piano with her and she plays the piano and it's beautiful and it's it's uh, it's about the relationship she has with her, Sam Neill's character and the environment as well and the locals. It's a dark, beautiful film and the music is amazing and I think Holly Hunter played it all herself. It just really struck me when I saw it at the cinema at the time and it's, uh, it's just stayed with me since then. Yeah, it's a good film. Thank you very much. All right, well, my number eight is Dragon, the Bruce Lee story starring Jason Scott Lee, no relation. Um, and it is the first and one of the few biopics of the great Bruce Lee, who I, I'm a big fan of. We've talked about him on the show before. Yeah. Um, and it's a really good film. It's it's a, it's a pretty straightforward biopic. It does have some sort of dream imagery to kind of give things a little bit of a mystical air. Um, Jason Jason Scott Lee doesn't look very much like Bruce Lee, but I think he really inhabits the character. Yeah, he did a good job. Yeah, and I really, what I love about it is, too, that it it presents him in a serious light, but it's also got a lot of humor in it. You know, it's not a film that takes itself too seriously. Yeah. And I just always really enjoyed the film, and I, I think it's a 
you know, it's, it's a good yeah, flick. It's, it's a good, most enjoyable film. Yeah, I remember watching that. Didn't make my list, but you know, it's a good, yeah. good pick. Okay, my number seven is In the Line of Fire, directed by Wolfgang Peterson, starring Clint Eastwood, John Malkovich, Rennie Russo, and Dylan McDermott, and Gary Cole. A great film uh, where Clint Eastwood, he's a Secret Service agent who's trying to track down John Malkovich's character who said he's going to assassinate the US president. And I, I always enjoyed the film from the beginning. It was a slightly... Slightly different role for Clint. He was he was a tough guy and everything, but he was one of the nice tough guys. He you know he he cared about people. He was trying to he'd, he'd failed in the past and he wanted to do that. And John Malkovich was brilliant as the bad guy. And when he's making the gun out of plastic, something. Because I remember at the time going, "What's he doing? How's that going to work as a gun?" And he going, "Oh, I see." But uh, I was like, and the scene with her, Clinton, Rennie Russo at the the Lincoln Memorial, where he's saying. If she looks back, come on, she's going to look back. And she looked back. It's great. Yeah. I do enjoy that film. Yeah, yeah, I do too. Uh, in fact, I like it so much, it is also my number seven. Yay! Nice. Yeah, great film. I, I, I'm a big fan of Wolfgang Peterson. Uh, we just talked about one of his films last week with Enemy Mine. Yeah. And, um, you know, it, it is, like you said, it's really great. And I just, the scene that always stood out for me was when John Malkovich is at the bank and and the bank teller is like, oh, you're from this small town? I'm from it yeah, too. Yeah. And, you know, she asked him all these questions and then he like, gets all flustered and then he shows up at her house later and kills her it's like oh it's so yeah. intense like it just shows the the kind of you know the intensity and the craziness of this character but it is it is it was neat to see clint eastwood i think it was one of the first films where he sort of embraced that he was getting yeah. older yeah you're right i think it was yeah the film you know he he had trouble keeping up he couldn't jump from one building to the next and and things yeah. like that and it, it, instead of instead of trying to have him play through it it actually made that part of the story and and that's what i really yeah, liked you're about right. it. I'd forgotten about those elements of it yeah it's, it was a big part of it though yeah, yeah. it is it is one of my favorites of his and uh, I, I do really enjoy it it's just a solid thriller from start yes. to finish so good yeah, pick both of our number sevens okay well my number six is one we went after the ending of back in episode 12 demolition man oh yeah that's right great film or the stallone film directed by marco brambilla and also starring wesley snipes but sylvester stallone's a cop gets frozen wakes up in the future and wesley snipes is a bad guy gets frozen as well wakes up and it's all about he's going crazy killing people and the the future police can't cope with it so they get Stallone to go go out there and kick some ass it also features uh Sandra Bullock uh quite pretty good I like the whole future effect and everything you know the three seashells and all that stuff and but it's uh yeah it's a good solid action film and Wesley Snipes was great as was Stallone yes yes uh you know it it almost made my list I actually had I think the reason it got cut was I had it as a tie with Cliffhanger and I didn't want to have three ties on my list so I took them both out but that it's certainly again those would probably be my like my number 11 would be Cliffhanger and Demolition (laughs) Man both both films I enjoy quite a bit okay all right well my number six is a a smaller film uh but it's a film that is near and dear to my heart and it is Matinee starring John Goodman yeah this this almost made my list of back and forth yeah good film. Oh, it's so good it's it's definitely an underseen classic and it's yeah, about yeah. this film producer during the cold war and he comes to this small town to promote his new movie mant about <laughs> a half man half ant and it's brilliant parody of those 1950s creature features it has kind of a film within a film which i love and actually it's interesting it was filmed in orlando right around where i lived and almost everybody i went to high school with uh, was an extra in the film, oh, cool. except oh, for no. me. And I was somebody who was actually doing professional acting at the time, and somehow I didn't get the call. <laughs> I, I didn't even, you know, to, to be in it, but everybody that I knew at school who wasn't a professional actor at the time did. So a lot of my friends are extras in the film, and I am not. And I actually am okay with that because I love the film so much. I think it would have been different had I, yeah, yeah. you know, had I been, been in it. But it, it's just this great kind of, it's got a bit of a kind of a coming-of-age story in it. It's got kind of a parody of these 50s films. John Goodman is, is brilliant. It's, it's a commentary on the 1950s in general and it's really really worth 
checking out if you haven't seen it. Yeah, I, I can I can second that. It is very good. Yeah. Okay, my number five is an animated movie. It's Batman Mask of the Phantasm, which Excellent was a choice. feature-length version spin-off, well, a continuation of Batman the Animated Series, which is still one of the best Batman that there's been so far. This one is really good as well. Uh, allow allow me to correct you, Phil. Go on. It's not one of the best. Yeah, it is the best. It's it is the best. The best yeah, you're right. It is. It's the de- <laughs> the definitive, you know, moving image Batman that there's been so far. Right. Right. Exactly. Uh, it features the you know the best Batman as well, Kevin Conroy. Right. Voicing Bruce and Bats, and Mark Hamill as the Joker, and it's just great. It's you got he's going up against the 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 Reaper. He's trying to track down what's going on there. But we also have flashbacks with the uh, the Bruce's past and sort of seeing how. He was almost given, he was, you know, he almost stayed being Bruce, but then events happened as well, which meant, you know, he realized he was going to be Batman forever and he had a mission to do. But it's uh, a great mystery, a beautiful animation as well, superb voice cast, and it's just great. All right. Well, uh, my number five is not Batman Mask of the Phantasm, uh, but it is a film that I think a few people have seen, and it is Jurassic Park. Oh, yes. Uh, yes. Which I know could be higher on my list. I, I like Jurassic Park. I like it a lot. It's, a, I mean, it's a great film. It's a big Spielbergian adventure. It was groundbreaking in its special effects, and, and I, I really do truly enjoy it. But I would be lying if I didn't say there was always a tiny little something missing from it that I could never put my finger on. Yeah, yeah, uh, I know what you mean. You know, it's one of those films I, I really enjoy, but I don't rank it at the same level as I do other films like, you know, Star Wars or Indiana Jones yeah. or Back to the Future. Like, it, it never quite made that that pantheon for me. So that's why it's at number five. Still pretty high. It's a great film. You know, it, it is a classic. I do love the, the what they did with it, and seeing the big dinosaurs was great, but that's why it's right in the middle of my list. No, it's good. It's my, my number four is Jurassic Park. Very good. Like you, it's. I mean, I loved it. It's. It's. It's great, and the dinosaurs were amazing. But yeah, I totally agree with you. It's. Yeah, there's just that little something which just doesn't. It's missing, which could have pushed it right up there to be with the you know the legendary films. Right. I, I, exactly. I, I, but like you as well, I can't put my finger on what it is. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe it's maybe it's sort of like it sort of just peters out a bit at the end. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's a tough one, but that's my number four. Very good. Well, we flip-flopped on our number five and number four because my number four is Batman <laughs> Mask of the Phantasm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and I think you said everything needs to be said about it. It's It really is my favorite Batman film, and I am super glad to say that I saw it in theaters, which oh, I would is have loved no, that, yeah. no mean feat because it lasted about a day and a half in the theaters yeah, against yeah. so many other big films. It, it disappeared very, very quickly, but I remember sitting there in the theater and watching it, and I loved it. I love the animated series and uh this the movie is just it is perfect from start to finish as far yeah. as i'm all, concerned all the batman animated just just watching them every now and again i watch some of them just so many cool moments Eve, yeah he just wanted to be i want to see that stuff that's in that in a live action batman film because then we'd have a proper right. batman film live action right film, right yeah. wonderful okay my number three then we're in our top three my number three is carlito's way directed by brian de palmer a great film that almost made my list i do really love that movie yeah it's it's uh, I, I love it. al pacino sean penn penelope Ann, Miller, John Leguizamo, Benny Blanco from the, Blanc, the Bronx, and Vigo Mortensen. I just love it. It's a gangster. He's got out of prison. He wants to go straight, and he gets back in the crowd, and he gets mixed up with some of the some of the people he knew, who, and it doesn't work out the way he wants, and it's brilliant, and you know what's going to happen at the end because you've seen it all the way through. But then when you find out what exactly happened, you're going, oh, my God, if he, if he just hadn't done this. Yep, yep. Al Pacino just looks so cool as well, isn't it? Yeah. He's just... Every, he just... His whole... 
the whole look for Carlito is just brilliant. I love it. And, you know, it's funny. The only reason I think it didn't make my list is it has been quite a while since I've seen it. Um, but it, it was, uh, this was a tough year. There was a lot of films oh, that didn't yeah, make my yeah. list that I wanted to put on there. And that was one of them. If you're listening and you've never seen it, go go try and find it somehow because it's real. Yeah, it's definitely good Brian De Palma, yeah, not oh, bad yeah, it's, And it's a real good gangster film as well. Yep. Well, my number three, I'm, I'm, I'm very proud of the fact that none of my top three films are blockbusters. One of them is definitely a cult favorite, but uh, these are, I like to be able to talk about smaller films once in a while. Okay. Uh, and, and number three is a pure thriller. It is, you could almost call it a B movie. It certainly wasn't a big hit, but I have loved it since the day I saw it, and I I always will love it. It's so intense. It is Judgment Night. Oh, this almost made my list, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Emilio Estevez, Jeremy Piven, Cuba Gooding Jr., and Dennis Leary as the bad guy. I'm a big Dennis Leary yeah, fan, which yeah. is... And I've always liked Emilio Estevez. So when this came out, I remember wanting to see it. And I actually saw it at a sneak preview. And, man, I, I remember sitting in that theater with my... Like, digging my nails into the, <laughs> the, the, the grips on the seat. It is so intense. And it's just, you know, it's these guys, these, like, you know, kind of suburban guys who get lost in, like, you know, really bad neighborhood they run afoul of this bad guy they witness a murder and you know he's determined to hunt them down and it is just one big long you know chase yeah. basically of, of these guys trying to get away and trying to get help and, and it's, just it's a bit like the warriors in... but if the warriors were just normal guys who couldn't fight right. and do, yeah. exactly yeah. Uh, exactly it is very much like that and man i just love it it is so intense and it, it's just uh, is a great great film yeah right it's a good real i remember enjoying the heck out of that when i finally got to see it yeah yeah good stuff oh good choice though okay my number two though is a western and it is Tombstone. Very good. Starring Kurt Russell, Val Kilmer, Sam Elliott, Bill Paxton, Powers Booth, Michael Bean, Donna Delaney, and also has narration by Robert Mitchum. There you go. And I just, it's, it's all about Wyatt Earp, Doc Holliday, Johnny Ringo, and the events of what happened in Tombstone and the OK Corral. But it goes all through, you know, the main part of, of Wyatt Earp's life. And, and Kurt Russell, who I love, he's brilliant as Wyatt. But everybody else is just superb. But Val Kilmer... You know, he's the most valuable player in the film because he's just absolutely superb as Doc Holliday. Yep. He, to this day, when somebody asks for something that they need, you know, that I can do, I can help them with, I, I very often will respond with, I'm your Huckleberry. Yeah, I'm your Huckleberry. <laughs> just so many good bits in it. It's got so many. Billy Zane's in it as well, Jason Priestley. It's just brilliant. It's just, you get the, the do the old West feel as well. You see the town starting, what people need to do to make money, how it worked. And then when, when it all goes down as well and the shootout starts, that's cool. And then there's even more shootouts afterwards, but... It's really good. And I mean, Michael Bean as well as Johnny Ringo. You just want to, I would have loved to have a film all about him because he was, some, yeah. he was a weird messed up bad guy. Right. And I right. wanted to know more about him when I was watching right. it. But uh, yeah, it's my number two. Well, Phil, once again, we are in lockstep on our opinions because my number two film is also Tombstone. Ah. And, and you summed it up beautifully. I mean, that cast and, you know, I'm your Huckleberry and everything. I mean, it's just, it doesn't get much better than that. It is, it is a great film. Uh, and, yeah, I think you said it all, so I'll leave it at that. Yeah, so many great moments. Always always worth a watch as well. Yeah, yeah, I need to watch it again. It's been too long, but I really do love that film. Excellent. Okay, well, here we are then. My number one is Groundhog Day, directed by Harold Ramis and starring Bill Murray and Andy McDowell and Chris Elliott. Well, we know the story. You know, guy, a nasty guy, lives the same day over and over, and it's just brilliant, funny, hilarious. Bill Murray's superb. And we went after the ending of it back in episode 27, and we didn't just repeat the events of the film. Cause, come on, <laughs> That's right. We'll be on that. <laughs> That's right. We're, be we're better than that. Well, there's just, it's it's very funny. It's you can, Whenever it comes on, you can just watch it. It's, it's, it's an easy watch, but it's also funny. And it also, you know, deals with some deep philosophical things as well. But on the whole, 
It's just really funny. Well, I think that is a great pick. It did not make my list, though, actually. I, I like Groundhog Day. I always have. Um, you know, I have sort of a, a thing about Bill Murray. I like yeah, Bill Murray, yeah. but I, you know, but I, I like Groundhog Day. It could have been in my top 20, but I don't, it wasn't a top 10 one for me. Okay, well, hit me then. What is your number one? My number one is one of my all-time favorite comedies ever. Hands down. Go on, what is it? What is it? What is it? And it is So I Married an Axe Murderer. Oh, I love that, yeah. This almost made my list, yeah. I, I have to be honest with you. I, there are very few films that I love as much as I love So I Married an Axe Murderer. I, I don't even know how many times I watched this film through the 90s. It was one of those movies where I would watch it with a friend, then I you know, would take it to another friend's house yeah, and be like, you yeah. got to watch this, and then another friend's house. And I would just, every weekend, I, I was watching So I Married an Axe Murderer. Um, it's, it's, Mike Myers has never been funnier. Uh, it, you know, it's the one mainly, the mainly because films. he was just mainly on the whole being himself. He wasn't doing a right, character right. Most of it. Yeah, it's one of the few films he's been in where he isn't a character. You know, he's just Charlie. And um, I mean, it's got the whole the beat poetry thing. And this is a movie. I actually I was I had a few friends over the other night and we started talking about it. And I started quoting it, and it went on for like five minutes. Like I, I can, you know, I, I always say oh, I can quote this movie for days, and I can usually get you know five or six quotes. I, I can literally <laughs> quote this movie from start to finish. Uh, I won't do it now, but there, there's so many, and I really, I really love this movie. It is so funny. It was never a big hit. If you haven't seen it yet, please track it down. You will thank me for it. Um, but I, I will never ever get tired of this movie. It's just one of my all time favorites. Yeah, I don't. It's. Uh... As I said, almost made my list because it is funny. But he did play a character, he played his father in it, didn't he? But I love that bit when he's playing. Right. He's going, uh, "Look at the size of that boy's head. Look at his head. It looks like an orange, orange on a toothpick." toothpick. <laughs> <laughs> head pants now. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Oh, it's so great. Oh, and it, so it great. also got uh, Phil Hartman in, hasn't it? The late great. Phil oh Hartman. yeah, he's great. Yeah. What's this way to the cafeteria. There's a line I do that I quote from that part, which I can't say <laughs> in our show. But doesn't he say, you can call me Jackie or something like that? What's My name is John Johnstone, but everyone here calls me Vicky. Vicky, that's it, yeah. Oh, so, yeah. Told you, I can literally quote the An whole movie. Film. Yeah, it was just bubbling under. It almost made my list, but uh, no, it's, uh, it's well worth it. I want to watch it as well. But yeah, 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 so much fun. All right, well, there you go. So that is 1993, a very good year for movies. I did have a hard time narrowing this list down, yeah, I will say. Yeah. It was fun to revisit. An excellent, yeah, good year. I was looking at my list of things that almost made it, and they could have, yeah, any other year they would have been in there. Right, right, exactly. All right, well, that is going to start to wrap things up for us. But, Phil, we have some exciting stuff coming up next week. Why don't you tell people what we have in store for them? Well, Mike, I'm glad you asked. And, yes, it is going to be exciting. It's going to be a little bit different, but don't worry. It's not going to be that different. It's not a mini episode. Yeah, next week we're going to be doing a single after the ending, but it is for the wonderful, the brilliant, the very funny The Breakfast Club. A true classic, yes. if ever there was so that's one. that's going to be good. So we'll be sp spending a little bit longer on that one because of different characters, but that's, that's going to be the after the ending. And we'll also be doing our top 10 favorite films of 2015. So we're not going back that far, but already I can't really think what was out that year. So we'll <laughs> right. have to look. Uh, but the main, we'll also be having an interview that Mike did with uh, Chad Michael Collins, who's previously been on the show way, way back in episode 21. Uh, but we've got another more recent interview, and it's very good. Uh, Chad's been in some of the Sniper movies, and he's got a new TV show coming out and things like that, so it'd be well worth listening to. He's a top bloke. Uh, he's a bit of a, a nerd. Yes. When it comes to uh, books and movies and TV. 
and he's very yeah. cool and very funny. He is. You know, it, it's uh, he's got a new movie coming out, like you said, a new TV show coming out. It's a, it's a really great interview. He's a super nice guy, uh, and he does talk about his his love of geeky things. He talks about his kind of small town upbringing, uh, and you know, and his career in Hollywood. It, I, I really had a great time talking to him, and I'm, I'm happy to call him a friend of the show. Uh, and we're super excited to have him back on. And I think you guys will really really enjoy it, even if you don't know him, uh, you know, as a household name yet. Uh, he is definitely a, a really good up and coming actor. So I, I think you'll enjoy this interview quite a bit definitely come back and check that out yeah it's always nice hearing these up-and-coming actors when they talk you know just talking about their experiences on you know making these things and meeting the people i always like it yeah it's always good yeah i asked him different questions from the last time we interviewed him too so it'll be a different interview experience for sure <laughs> all right well on that note then that is going to do it for us uh, so as always we thank you for listening i'm mike spring and i'm phil edwards and we'll see you next week after the ending I have to go to Baltimore next week for three days, but it's Monday through Wednesday, so it won't affect our recording. I don't really know much about Baltimore apart from uh, John Waters and hairspray and things like that. Yeah, I guess. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's, that's all I know, really. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's in Maryland. I, I, I have a good junkie story. My favorite junkie story, as I call it, took place Everybody in has to have a good junkie story. Well, I don't know if everyone does, but I feel like I, feel like I do. So... <laughs> That's, Go on, that's always a good one. To f- well, so hang on a second. <laughs> I uh, I was in Baltimore for work actually a long time ago for a different company, and um, two there was three of us down there, and two of us were at one hotel because we were working in one building, and one of us is another hotel because we were he was working at different buildings. So the first night we were there, we stopped at this corner. It was like a big intersection, yeah. and I and I look over and I I very clearly witnessed a drug deal. It was like two people meeting up, and one person kind of hands the person like very slyly hands them something, and the other person pulls something out of their pocket and kind of very slyly hands it to them. And it was like and, and this section of Baltimore was was not a good area. It was very could, could it have been two down. magicians like practicing magic tricks? <laughs> it, it's possible, but it, it was definitely very clearly a drug deal. So, um <laughs> so, so the next night we had picked up the other guy. We were going to dinner and we ended up stuck at that same intersection and I was telling him I'm like, "Oh, this is this is the corner where we we saw the drug deal go down." And right as I'm telling him this, there's a person on a payphone standing on the corner of the spec when there were still payphones. Tells you how long ago it was. Oh, crap. He's talking on the payphone, hangs up the payphone, turns around, and vomits all over the sidewalk. <laughs> just randomly in the middle of the street, like just pukes his guts out. <laughs> and I was like, this is the best chunky corner ever because everything exciting happens at this corner. So that's my that's my exciting, that's my junky story, I guess, well, as I call it. It sounds like he was on some good drugs. That's yeah. what I'm saying. Like, clearly... Yeah. Like he didn't look like he was ill necessarily, <laughs> if you know what I mean. It was, but it was, it was like I've, that sounds like the start of a sci-fi horror movie. Yeah, right. I know, right? Because then, like three hours later, he's at home, like in a cocoon, you know, like transforming <laughs> into a bug. Cronenberg uh, everywhere. Yeah, right, 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 exactly. And of course, kids, listen up there. Don't do drugs. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Read books instead. Oh, watch That's films. Right. Yeah, yeah, they're <laughs> just as addictive, but way more healthy for you. Yeah. Yeah, I still I still can't quite understand how that's doing. This horror film is just like breaking, smashing the box office, and it's a Stephen King adaptation. And on the whole, they're never usually that that good, but this one is. But I, even then, it's just strange how this one just seems to have caught the public, you know, perception and got all these people going to see it. I mean, Pennywise seems to have hit the zeitgeist, even though. What if? Everybody... Go on. So what if all those weird clown sightings we've been seeing online on Facebook and stuff for the past like two years, what yeah. if that was all guerrilla marketing for it? You know what? It could be. And they've been planning it all this time. I wouldn't be in the least surprised if that turned Wouldn't out that be crazy case. though? That'd be so cool. If it, it was revealed. Nobody was hurt, were they, by then? They right, just, they right. Just, stood there just freaking people weird. out. 
That would be if, so cool. I'm going if, with that. I'm sticking yeah, with that. Yeah, I'm going with that. And whoever, if it is, if that was the case, the marketing people who came up with that, I'm raising my drink to you now. Just be, think great if, it was. if they had done that for other movies, like if like two years before like John Carter came out, they had like a guy in a loincloth just like <laughs> showing up outside people's houses, you know, and like standing on the side of the street and stuff. That could have been a, a much bigger hit. <laughs> and then I get to walk like two miles back to my hotel in the dark afterwards by myself. So that should be fun. Wow, that should be, you might get another cool junkie story. <laughs> well, luckily where I'm staying is a much nicer section. I'm more concerned about getting a being sucked into the sewer story out of it, you know. Well, you know, you'll all float. Yeah, exactly. Float down here. Oh, the, ju- the junkies float, I hear. Yeah. Well, it's got dark now, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Here's Pennywise. Hiya, kids. <laughs> uh, say something so I can hear you. Uh, something so you can hear me. <laughs> Thank you, Captain Literal. You're welcome. Well, you know, we, uh, I, yeah, I don't know what I'm saying. <laughs> and Barry's mother, uh, what's her name? Julie? Yeah. Jesus, Julie. man, do your research. I know, I just, I didn't write the, uh, <laughs> yeah. 1993, the UK Prime Minister was John Major and the US President was Bill Clinton. Wait, 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 wait the, the British Prime Minister was Drum Major? John Major, I'll say it again. Oh, John Major. I thought yeah. Drum Major, I'm like, isn't that like the people who march in the bands with the, <laughs> the you know, drum line and all that? <laughs> what, um, the what? I, all the people. Now you lost me. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Scratch that. <laughs>